One of the insults that's thrown around is that someone may be an Australian. Ball tampering during a cricket test, that's un-Australian. Taking mega pay, even financial payouts when you're the CEO, that's un-Australian. As an insult, it kind of works, though it fails because actually no one really knows what it means. What's the standard? Uh, Who's the model Australian we should all be like? Uh, What about being a Christian? Now have a look down. I want you to have a look down straight away to 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. In verse 12 we see that God calls Christians to live a certain way. So verse 12 talks about living lives worthy of God who calls you to live in his, in, so he calls you into his kingdom and glory. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, God has called us to live in a certain way. To live worthy of his calling. The name, worthy of the name he's given you, Christian. Uh, The Bible is very clear about what is Christian and what is unchristian. And some of the times we're pretty good at living these Christian things out. But when we're under pressure, when things get tough, uh, the temptation is to not live the way of Christ, but to live our own way. In times of conflict, the temptation is to fight fire with fire. Uh, When we're in financial need, the temptation is to become stingy, not generous, or to do unethical things to get, make or keep money. When the culture or the government puts pressure on us to not live God's way, we bow under the pressure. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is a letter written to Christians who are under pressure. And in chapter 2, believers are called to live and work for Jesus under pressure. And it's not something we're just told to do. In this letter, Paul doesn't just talk the talk. He also walks the walk. He puts himself and the mission team who the, who've been to Thessalonica as an example. So we can see how this is done. Now, both of the letters to the Thessalonians appear to be written pretty soon after Paul visited Thessalonica. So what happened when Paul, Silas and Timothy were in Thessalonica was fresh in their minds. They can remember how they lived. And they also remember the context, the situation under which Paul and Timothy and Silas arrived. So in Acts 16 and 17, we hear about the gospel coming to Macedonia. That's the region that Thessalonica is in. Uh, This part of their mission trip started in Philippi. And you might remember what happened there. After casting a spirit out of an enslaved girl, there was a riot. Uh, Paul and Silas were beaten, thrown in jail. There was an earthquake. And the jailer asked that key question, what must I do to be saved? After that series of events, uh, the mission team head south down to Thessalonica. And after all they'd been through, you'd have forgiven them if they took it easy. Uh, Keep their heads down, had some time out for some self-care. That's not what they did. They get to Thessalonica and get to work telling people about Jesus. So have a look at verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared. We dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. After Philippi, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they could have given up and played it safe. 
But they didn't. They dared to speak about Jesus. And then when opposition flared up in Thessalonica, when they were kicked out of the synagogue, and then there was a a furious mob and false accusations, they could have fought fire with fire. When the going gets tough, sometimes the tough gets going, sometimes the tough fight back. But that's not what they did. They keep living faithfully to God because that's what they've been called to. That's who they are. Because what motivated Paul and his team the whole way through in Philippi and Thessalonica is pleasing God. So have a listen, verse 3. Verse 3, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. What kind of impure motives could Paul and the mission team be inspired by? What bad motives could have they had? Uh, there's a story about L. Ron Hubbard. He's the, the inventor, the founder of the cult Scientology. Uh, he believed religion is the fastest way to make money. And it does, it works for some people. So greed could have been the motivation for Paul. Uh, Paul could also have had impure motives as in being motivated by his own psychological needs. He needed to feel special, to feel important. He needed people to listen to him. But that is not why he proclaimed the gospel. There was no impure motives. He kept telling people about Jesus, kept calling them to, to turn and trust in Jesus. And they did this, the whole mission team did this, not because they were living to please themselves or other people, but because they were living to please God. Verse 4, I think, is the most astounding, most challenging verse in this passage. It's huge. It's a big call, isn't it? That we didn't live to please people, but God. And the reason we live to please God is because he tests our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows the reason why we do things. He doesn't just test us by our appearances, but he knows our hearts. I think being a people pleaser is a serious temptation for most of us. It is a sin that is very hard to put to death. One of the ways we see our our people-pleasing desires is when we're reluctant to talk to people about Jesus. Why don't we talk to people about Jesus? It's because we want people to like us. Yes, the gospel of Jesus is great news, isn't it? Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, but the good news implies bad news. The good news is that there is salvation for all who repent and believe. The bad news is, well, you've got sin you've got to repent of. The bad news is we are not as nice or as good as we'd like to think. The bad news is God's eternal judgment will come on sinners unless we repent. And because we want to please people, because we want to be liked, we don't want to cause offence. We shy away from speaking of Jesus. And so we sin. Desiring the praise of people more than pleasing God. Uh, Being a people pleaser can look different at different times, doesn't it? And it looks different in different cultures and with different personalities. I think some of us might have our tick the box. We know those Christians who are people pleasers and we think we know those who aren't. But I think it's a little bit more, more nuanced than that. The sins that our culture affirms and the sins they despise change over time. Today, we feel anxious talking about gender and sexuality. We're anxious saying that these things are a gift from God 
and that God cares about what we do with our body and our minds and that there are ways to express our gender and sexuality that are sinful. Today, Christians feel anxious about calling those things sin. A hundred years ago, it would have taken a brave Christian to call out racism, to say it was sinful how, in general, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were being treated. It was sinful how, in general, people of colour were treated in Australia. Today, if you call racism sin, no one's going to be offended. But there are sins celebrated in every culture and at every time. And because we want to please people, we find it hard to talk about those sins and we find it much easier to talk about the sins that everyone agrees are bad things to do. And then I think we also need some self-awareness to who are the people we're trying to please. Now, some of us, our personality is we tend to acquiesce. We, we crumble under pressure. We don't want to do anything that causes conflict. And, and we might excuse it, don't we? We say, well, we don't want to be rude or disrespectful. And it's true. Rudeness is, is a vice. Disrespect is ugly. But that's actually not what's going on. We, we just want people to like us rather than living to please God. Uh, for other people, our personality is we're oppositional. We enjoy the buzz we get from a fight or the applause we get from our tribe when we're abrasive or even offensive. We might excuse our rudeness by saying, well, I'm definitely not a people pleaser, but actually we are. We're just trying to please a different crowd. We live for their applause or their approval rather than trying to live to please God. We need to know ourselves. We need to know our culture and the times we're in And we need to hear clearly the call of the Lord Jesus to live wholly for him and to not be people pleasers. It's one of the reasons why gathering as church is so important, is it? Our brothers and sisters are in Christ are the ones who should keep shaping us and forming us to be living for God and for his cares and not for the crowd around us. We don't play to the crowd, we play to the crowd of one. And we see that in both of our, both our motives and our actions. So our actions matter to God, don't they? So not just God looks at our heart, but he also looks at what we do. And the mission team that went to Thessalonica, they knew this. They knew how they lived and what they said, but also how they lived had to match what they said and show that they were messengers of Jesus. So have a listen to how gospel ministry in Thessalonica is described. So verse 5, you know, we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. In this passage, uh, we get a, in this paragraph, we get a, co- a contrast. There are two sets of three. Three things gospel workers aren't and three things they are. And they're, they're laid out like a set of brackets. Uh, so I'm going to put them up on the screen. So verse 5, there was no flattery. Instead, verse 8, they spoke the gospel. So no flattering words, but gospel words. No fake words to impress people. Instead, true words of Jesus that bring true life. Secondly, they didn't take. Gospel workers don't seek money or glory, so there was no greed. Instead, verse 7, they gave of their very selves. 
And Paul uses this intense and, and beautiful image of a nursing mother giving from her own body to nourish this little life. Gospel work is the same. The mission team gave of their very selves to nurture the baby church in Thessalonica. And finally, uh, they didn't burden by taking what was rightfully theirs. Gospel ministry isn't about power or using authority. Instead, verse 7, they came in weakness like a young child. Uh, This picture of a, a young child, it is confusing I'm sure as you read it, you've got to scratch your head, go, what, what's, why, why is he like a young child? And then how does the young child fit with the nursing mother? And how does it fit with the father later in the passage? Part of the reason for the confusion in this passage is there is a, a copying issue. In some ancient Greek manuscripts, the word in verse 7 means gentle. But in the oldest manuscripts, in uh, the word in verse 7 means infant. You'll probably see that in your Bible with the footnotes. Now, in English, gentle and young children are very different words. Like you can't mishear those words. They they sound very different. But in Greek, the difference is one letter. And so you can imagine how a copying mistake snuck in as people were copying the Bible by hand. I think Paul originally said his ministry in Thessalonica was like an infant, like a young child. But what does that mean? When Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these... He's using children in that context to talk about dependence. Little children depend on their parents for everything. And so little children have to trust their parents will provide. And this is a picture of faith, isn't it? We need to trust in God, depend on God, like a little child depends on their parents for everything they have. If you import that meaning of little children into 1 Thessalonians, it doesn't make any sense. Instead, Infants are contrasted with using power and demanding money. When we serve Jesus, we lay down our rights. We serve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus in weakness. I think that's the picture. Paul and Silas and Timothy were like infants. They were weak. They lived and demonstrated weakness in all of their life and ministry so that God would be seen as strong. That's what Paul's talking about here. And part of the way he shows weakness is by sharing not only a message, he's not just a travelling speaker, not just someone who blasts out a message on social media. He doesn't set up a tent in the middle of town and then hide in his green room between shows. No, Paul and his mission team, they built deep relationships. They shared their lives with this baby church in Thessalonica. They spoke about the joys and tears, their successes and failures. They were open and honest about their temptations and sins, confessing their sins together. They prayed together. They shared meals together. They shared not only the gospel, but their lives as well. Do you reckon you'd say that about our church? That we share the gospel and our lives? Maybe. Some of us. Maybe some of the time. I think we find this very hard in our culture. Partly, we'd love to blame technology, but I think technology just amplifies what's already there in our hearts, isn't it? We are terrible at transparency and showing weakness. And we get so busy, it takes time to share lives, doesn't it? It is inefficient and messy to share our lives together, but this is what God calls us to do. 
It's one of the reasons we've been running prayer meetings for the last few weeks. As we pray, as we come together and we cry out to God, we are also sharing our lives as we share what is on our hearts. And it's great to do that. It's important to share our lives because it's a big way that God changes us, changes us to be more like Jesus is by providing examples. And you don't get examples unless you actually can see what's really going on for a person as they share the story of their life and how God has shaped and formed them, how God has been with them through trials, how, how he's encouraged them and, and given them joy in times of, of, of success. God changes us. One of the ways is through providing examples. And he calls us to be examples to one another as, and, and he calls us to learn from the examples around us. And that's where Paul goes in this final section, reminding the Thessalonians of his example of godly living and teaching. So verse 9, have a look there, verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden on anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. How does Paul summarize their ministry in Thessalonica? It was hard work. Not only the hard work of tent making, but also the hard work of evangelism and making disciples. The hard work, uh, they worked hard serving Jesus uh, with the gospel, being servants of the gospel. And he describes his hard work as being fatherly, a father type work. This passage is really interesting, isn't it? In our culture where there is confusion about gender expression, how we live as men and women in God's world, Paul's words are both expected and unexpected. So have a look, just to zoom in verse 7 and verse 11. Paul says that Christian ministry, and I take it not just Christian ministry, but the whole of the Christian life, is modelled after both dads and mums. Like a father, he encouraged, comforted and urged. Like a a mother, he nurtured. and, And he's also weak like an infant. When he uses these pictures, there's an acknowledgement that there's something different about fathers and mothers. Mums and dads are different, and and this reflects the way things work out in family, and also church, because church is the household of God. And this difference between fathers and mothers most likely reflects something about men and women in general. But, and I think this is the bit that's going to be confronting for us, that previous bit will be confronting for other people, this bit's going to be confronting for us, Although there's a difference, Paul's got no problem saying Christian ministry is both fatherly and motherly. Paul, Silas and Timothy, they're all blokes. They they all encouraged like a father and nurtured like a mother. This complex word picture causes problems, doesn't it? It's a problem for those who want to draw really strict lines of gender expression. It also causes problems for those who want to muddy the waters... Now, really, this is an aside. I think it's a really interesting aside for us to grapple with, something for us to keep chewing on, this way that Paul is very happy to kind of both distinguish and merge. But the main point is the mission, sorry, the example of the mission team. They weren't just people talking heads. It was about their whole life. Their whole life showed the difference Jesus makes. They were examples. They lived the life God calls all believers to live. 
And they were unashamed to say, remember our example? The implication is follow, live like us, work hard, encourage, nurture, show your weakness so God can be strong. If you're a Christian, if you've been called by God, and not just called as in called to salvation, but you as a saved person, as an elect person, who in God's grace has responded to the call of the gospel, you have been called to live a life worthy of God. To live a life worthy of God. Now, we've got to get this right. Worthy of God is not about earning salvation. It's not like you've got to work, live a life worthy of God, and then if you're lucky, God might save you. That's what Mormons believe. It's not what the Bible says. It's also, though, not about paying God back for saving us. I think we we go wrong about this. Sometimes Christians talk about gratitude, that we're saved by grace, we obey God as an expression of gratitude. I'm not sure the Bible talks like this. The trap we fall into when we talk about gratitude is it sounds like we need to repay God for his grace through our obedience. But that's not the motivation for obeying God. It's not to pay him back. We live lives worthy of the calling of God because that is who we now are. By the Spirit, we love God. And this is now shown in our lives. By God's sovereign choice, we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we live as citizens. In God's grace, we enjoy the glory of God. And so we live to the praise of his glory. It's about who we are, not paying God back. Uh, When I do ministry in schools, I hear lots about virtue and identity. When I teach RI and the kids are acting up, teachers call the students to live out their identity. At One Mile School, we are learners, we are respectful, we are safe. And then the question, is that how you are behaving? At Kalula Christian College, we show clear values. And you can ask one of the staff or students, they can tell you what clear means. And they ask kids, are you doing that? What the teachers are doing is saying, behaviour comes from identity, Do you know who you are? So let's be respectful CCC students. Let's not be un-Australian. It's about calling people to live out their identity. It's the same in Christ. Christian behaviour comes from our identity as the people of God. To me, when we talk about gratitude, it sounds like paying back. That's not why we live worthy of God. We live lives worthy of God because that is now who you are. If you are resting in Christ Jesus... That is who you are. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We, church, have been called to God's glory, so live this way. Church, we're going to feel under pressure as followers of Jesus, aren't we? If you've been trusting Jesus for any amount of time, you already know this. There's all sorts of pressures working against it, working against us. When God calls us, sorry, what does God call us to do when we face pressure? He calls us to keep pressing on, to look to the examples of those who've gone before us. You might think about Christians you've been at church with and their example might be an encouragement to you. Uh, This is also why biographies of of Christians can be helpful. It's not the same as flesh and blood, but it's, it's another encouragement, isn't it? An example of a life worthy of God. So what about, why don't we, here's a challenge, read the biography of someone who kept doing gospel work, who lived to please God, not people despite hardship inside and pressures outside. And let's pray that God would strengthen us to live and work for him, to hold out the gospel, the word of life to our our family and friends, despite our temptations, the temptations we experience inside, that we want to be people pleasers, and even the opposition we might face outside. Let's pray. Father God, as we face pressures, 
Please strengthen us to keep living for you and serving you. Help us turn away from error and impure motives and to be bold in speaking about Jesus with our friends, family and neighbours. Strengthen us to be like infants. When we are weak, you are strong. Please provide godly examples for us and help us follow those examples. By your spirit, empower us to live lives worthy of you, to live to please you and not people. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake, knowing the power of your spirit to do more than we ask or imagine. Amen.